Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, State Auditor Shad White demands repayment of millions in misspent TANF funds. Then we ask the Department of Human Services when child care centers in the state can expect new COVID relief to kick in. And a conversation with writer, scholar, and activist Anita Hill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Office of the State Auditor has issued repayment demands for over $77 million of misspent TANF funds. That money was initially intended for needy families in Mississippi, but it was instead funneled via the Department of Human Services to influential business people and public figures in the state. Recipients included... Uh, Favre Enterprises, led by former NFL quarterback Brett Favre, as well as the Marcus Dupree Foundation and wrestler Ted DiBiase's Heart of David Foundation. For those organizations and several other beneficiaries of the misspending, the bill has now come due. Shad White is the state auditor. He speaks with Rob Lane. During uh, the tenure of previous DHS director John Davis, My office uncovered uh, about a year and a half ago that tens of millions of dollars of welfare money, TANF money, had been misspent. We did a couple of different audits over two years and also made some criminal arrests in the matter. And then that was followed by an independent forensic audit. It was done by a private CPA firm out of Maryland. They were hired by DHS, DHS's new leadership. That audit was finished on October 1. and, And now looking back at all of these pieces of evidence, my office was prepared to do what we always do when we see misspending, which is to tell the public who owes what back and then to officially demand those individuals pay back the amount of money that they either signed off on in terms of the spending or the amount of money that they received if they got money and they did not fully comply or fulfill the terms of the contract that they had signed in order to get that money. We, we identified about $77 million worth of TANF money that had been misspent. At this point, we have to charge interest on that. So the demand that we issued actually to DHS Director, former DHS Director John Davis, was north of $96 million. That's the largest individual demand that has ever been issued in the history of the state auditor's office. And then other individuals got smaller demands uh, that represent their portion of uh, the funds that they are responsible for repaying. TANF funds come to Mississippi as a block grant, as I understand it, which means the state has a little bit of 
leeway in terms of how they choose to spend it. In some cases, such as my understanding the case with Nancy and Zach New, there is very strong evidence to indicate that there was outright fraud occurring. In other cases, you have Ted DiBiase's and his Heart of David Foundation, the Marcus Dupree Foundation. Is it ever appropriate that TANF funds go to nonprofits? And if so, how did you know that in this case that spending was inappropriate? It's a great question, and you're right. TANF does come down from the federal government in a block grant, and, and what that means is that state agencies around the country responsible for handling this welfare money are allowed to give big grants of TANF funds to nonprofits. The issue and the trick is that those state agencies, including our own DHS here in Mississippi, those state agencies are responsible for making sure that the nonprofits spend the money in a way that is legally allowed for TANF funds to be spent. And the nonprofits themselves also sign agreements often that say, hey, we understand TANF rules and regs, and we are going to ensure that this money is spent in the way that the law requires. And unfortunately, in this case, that's not what happened. The money was spent a variety of different ways that were not allowed under TANF law and TANF regs. And when you start adding up all the amounts, the two different separate teams of auditors came to the conclusion that uh, north of $70 million had been misspent. And so that's that's why we issued these demands for, for $77 million and then, and then other smaller amounts jointly and severally. In the case of Mr. Favre, my understanding is that he received this money principally for a series of scheduled speaking engagements that never materialized. Do you, as the auditor, have you been able to determine what that money actually was spent on? No, no, the money the money went to Favre Enterprises. And, and when we asked for the contract that justified the payment from MCEC to Favre Enterprises, we were given a contract that said that an individual at Favre Enterprises, Mr. Favre, was going to give a series of speeches. We said, okay, well, you've already paid him the money. What were the speeches that he gave? So then we were given a list of speeches and dates. My office did not take that at face value. We continued doing research. The auditors went to social media. They looked at event agendas. They talked to individuals. They looked at pictures. They could determine that Mr. Favre was not at those events and did not speak at those events. And so uh, once we saw that, and once we saw that the check had actually already been cut to Favre Enterprises, that's when we said, okay, well, the, the Favre Enterprises contract has not been fully complied with. Mr. Favre did not comply with the contract. He may not even known that he was supposed to give these speeches, but that doesn't change the fact that the $1.1 million was still paid out. So uh, someone, whether it's Nancy New, who is uh, liable for handing that money to Favre Enterprises, or Mr. Favre or his CPA, Robert Columber, or Favre Enterprises, the corporate entity, someone is responsible for repaying the taxpayers the remainder of that $1.1 million. The only thing that, uh, that I have to be concerned with at this stage is making sure that the taxpayers do not take a loss on that. Ultimately, I suspect that if no one voluntarily repays that amount, that a judge will have to figure out who is liable for what portion of that money that was paid out to Favre Enterprises. Is this a zero-sum game? And help us put this in perspective, because there's a surreal element to this whole case with the celebrity names and what have you. I think it's important to remember that TANF stands for Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Was every dollar that was going to a celebrity friend or acquaintance of John Davis a dollar that was being sort of, quote-unquote, taken away from a needy family in Mississippi that was eligible under this program? 
help us help us understand that what that actually looks like playing out on the ground for the people who stand to be most seriously impacted by this misspending. Yeah, I think it's a great point because in this case we have two different sets of victims. We have the taxpayers who put the money into the system and then we have the folks who typically should be benefiting from TANF funds and those are typically needy individuals. So to answer your question more directly, yes, every dollar that was misspent that was spent on something that is not an allowable TANF object could have been spent on needy families, could have been spent in a way that uh, conforms with TANF rules and regs, and could have potentially benefited somebody in Mississippi, which unfortunately, as you know, uh, has a high poverty rate. Uh, It could have benefited families and individuals who should have received the benefit of those funds, and it didn't. Uh, That's both what makes this case particularly tragic, along with the sheer size of the loss. Uh, But frankly, it's also something that it was and is very motivating for the 135 men and women who work with me here in the auditor's office. We wake up every day trying to get to the bottom of matters like this, and sometimes they're small and sometimes they're big, but that is what makes working here gratifying, and and it's what what allows us to go home at the end of every week and and feel fulfilled with working with the state auditor's office and, and the mission that we have been handed by the taxpayers. Shad White is Mississippi's state auditor. Coming up, child care funding hangs in limbo at Mississippi's Department of Human Services. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. On yesterday's show, we heard from Dolores Sewell, who owns two daycares in Jackson. She says Mississippi's Department of Human Services is taking too long to distribute COVID-19 child care relief funding. I talked with one center, and, and I'm really sad to hear that indicated she was going to have to get a loan, hoping that she got this money. And, and that's what's so sad. The Department of Human Services, meanwhile, says the situation is more complicated. Vicki Lowry is the department's co-director for the Division of Early Childhood Care and Development. She speaks with Desiree Frazier. Mississippi is very fortunate to receive the kind of federal funding that we have recently received, first with the CARES Act, which was about a hundred was about sixty-five million. And then with the CURSA Act, which was about $133 million. And then most recently, we were awarded $500 million under the ARP legislation. Under that last pot of money, the ARP funding, $319 million of that funding is specifically designated to benefit child care providers directly. How much have you been able to distribute so far? We have distributed all of the CARES funding, that initial $65 million. All of that money has gone out. Have you spent any of the ARP funds? We have not. We have not spent any of the ARP funds yet. Um, Only a few states have, um, in large part because it takes a bit of time to get the application process and the monitoring systems in place to manage that kind of money. So our goal is to um, to do that as soon as possible. In fact, um, October 1, 
we put the initial information on our website about phase one of the ARP funding. And then we anticipate that we'll advertise the ARP funding for a couple of weeks, make sure that as many people as possible, child care providers who are eligible know about it, and then we'll open up the application process for that. How long do you anticipate that process will be from now? I mean, getting applications out, getting them reviewed and approved? Yes. Well, I think it's coming soon. In the next several weeks, we'll start the process. I think that things will move faster on getting the ARP stabilization grants dispersed if we can wind down or close out that initial pot of money, the CARES funding. So right now, slightly over half of the child care providers who received funding under that initial um, relief bill, the CARES Act, we are still awaiting documentation from them. Oh, even and though so, you distributed it? Yes, and that's how the feds have instructed us to do it. So the idea is to get the money to the child care providers as soon as possible so we can continue to provide these services to the families who need them most. At the time that the child care providers receive the grants, they have to acknowledge certain things that they agree to do, and that is to maintain documentation to be available for on-site visiting and monitoring of how that money's being spent, those types of things. It has been a more protracted process than we expected um, as we try to close down, close out that first pot of money. So we've been working with child care providers using our resource and referral network and the staff that we have there. They're reaching out to individual child care providers who have failed to submit any documentation or who have submitted some but not all of their documentation so that we can get them in financial good standing so they can receive additional funding through the ARP Stabilization Grant. And we're hearing from the Child Care Network. They tell us there are child care centers that are holding on by a shoestring, and they really, really need that ARP funding. We, we understand that, and we are trying to get that funding to them as soon as possible. There are a couple of things I'll mention there. The first is... The funding was issued by the federal government, but the guidance did not come until later. So Congress, very well-intentioned, wanted to get the money appropriated as quickly as possible. But the federal government did not do what they normally do as quickly as we thought, perhaps, in terms of providing us instructions about what that money could or could not be used for. So we had to wait for some guidance from the federal government about that. As individual states have sort of worked through that guidance and and try to decide what models and what programming works best for their states, additional questions have come up. So we, for example, have gone back multiple times now to the federal government asking for clarification about some things that we're trying to do in our state or some needs that we feel like need to be addressed in our state. Uh, We still have one question outstanding, and the rest have finally been answered, so we're awaiting some guidance from the federal government on that, and it's about the application process itself. So we need that information before we can launch that, that phase one. It took a bit of time for all the questions to be answered. And then the second thing is I don't think anybody on either the child care provider side or certainly not us on the agency side expected the closeout from that initial 
funding to take as long as it has. So we are very eager to finish that process so we can reassign those human resources to getting the ARP funding out and making sure that all the child care providers in the state are eligible to receive the ARP funding. Do you have the ARP funding now? It works on a reimbursement model. So once it's, we have the award, and then once we spend the money, we get the money back from the federal government. So it's not sitting in a bank somewhere collecting interest or anything. We're just waiting to start distributing those funds. And once we do, then the federal government will send those funds to us. Vicki Lowry is the co-director for the Division of Early Childhood Care and Development at Mississippi's Department of Human Services. Coming up, a conversation with Anita Hill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 30 years ago, Anita Hill testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee that her boss, then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, had sexually harassed her. In the time since, Hill has become a formidable advocate against gender violence. She's written about the issue for the New York Times and Newsweek, and she currently teaches social policy law and women's and gender studies at Brandeis University. Hill's new book is called Believing. It dwells principally on the intersection of her her lived experience, and the contemporary Me Too movement. Immediately following the hearing, I started to get threats and worried about my safety because the threats seemed very real, and they extended to my family as well. Friends lost jobs because of their involvement with me. Fortunately, though, I had a very loving and supportive family and a loving and supportive friend who stuck with me, despite the fact that they experienced some of the blowback. How long did those threats last? Oh, gosh, I can't put a a date on when they ended. I I still get phone calls today. So, in a sense, they they last forever. The impact, they'll be with me forever. In your book, what is the relationship between gender-based violence and racism? You know, gender-based violence at, at, at its core is is about anti-woman, it's about misogyny, and very often, in terms of the experience of women of color, it's overlaid with racism. With the data, what we find is that women of color are more likely than white women to experience sexual harassment, experience rape, intimate partner abuse. And so there is a racial element that's kind of like an add-on to the violence that they experience. But as well, they are less likely to have their accounts of gender violence investigated or taken seriously in any way. And so there are two ways that race implicates gender violence. It's hard for a woman who has experienced intimate partner violence or sexual assault to be taken seriously by law enforcement. And we know that much racism has been exposed to exist in many areas in terms of what our law enforcement does and the way they react to different populations. After your testimony at the Clarence Thomas hearing, and again, 30 years ago, there was an expectation, if not a movement, 
that the tide would turn, that women would be heard and harassment would be called out. Yet you say the Me Too movement hasn't resulted in that either. How so? I measure much of what I call change from the points of view of various people who I've been in touch with, who've written me, who've emailed me. Uh, And many of them do say that things change dramatically in their own lives, in their own workplaces after 1991. We do know that the number of claims rose. We know that activism around the issue has continued to build. Nevertheless, not enough has changed. And not enough has changed with our culture, our general culture, that's still quite dismissive and sometimes even denies and blames victims for the abuse they experience. Not enough has changed in terms of the structures uh, that people have to go into to have their complaints resolved and to be heard. And as an example of that, I give the Senate Senate Judiciary Committee. 1991, there was no process. Uh, And and certainly what happened uh, was entirely mismanaged uh, in 1991. Um, But in 2018, when Christine Blasey Ford stepped forward to testify, again, there was no process, no clear process for her to go to, who to complain to, what would happen once she had her complaint, whether there would be a hearing, and if there was a hearing, how it was going to be conducted. Uh, It was all just sort of done on the fly. And it left so many people disappointed, not entirely by the outcome, but also because the process was so so lacking. How do you explain women's vitriolic reaction to you and Blasey Ford testifying? Well, I, I think that's where the cultural denial comes in. We, we still are a culture that dismisses the, the harm that's caused by these problems whether it's sexual harassment or sexual assault, whether it's intimate partner violence, uh, we are trained as a culture to dismiss it as something that's personal and private and something that shouldn't be brought up in the public forum because it reflects badly on women. I have heard women say it just shows us to be weak and women are not weak. Um, and, And I agree that women are not weak, but I don't agree that claiming and reporting of sexual harassment or assault or rape or partner violence shows that women are weak. I think it shows that we are strong because we are truly still bucking the tide in coming forward and seeking accountability for the harm that's done to us. Anita Hill is the author of Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Professor Hill, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me on your program. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.